Is it his time? Yes! Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. My name is Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. Nice to have you along as we speak to yet another fascinating individual involved in the game of golf. Chubby Chandler, though. Yeah, Simon. So uh, we've spoken to some of the biggest names in golf from a playing point of view. We had Sir Nick Faldo. We've had Gary Player. We then segued. Ooh, lovely word. Nice word, hey? Segued nicely into the broadcast space with Doogie Donnelly. And I just thought it would be nice to explore perhaps the agent side of the game, the the money men, the men behind the players in the game of golf. And let's just get it out the way. I had nothing to do with this interview at all. Which is why it is absolutely brilliant. (laughs) I think people are going to really, really love it. It's the the best interview we've done. So far, yes. So, So no role in the interview itself, but perhaps a small role in selecting Chubby Chandler as our next interviewee. Yes, we caught up with Chubby in Cyprus, of all places, where his company, ISM, was actually involved in staging the two tournaments played on the European Tour there recently. Let's pick it up then there, shall we? Our chat, and by our chat, I mean Simon and Dale, not Dylan. Not mine. Our chat with legendary sports agent, Chubby Chan. The long and short of it. Actually, what happened was last October, I've got a friend that's got a friend here and said that, that it was you know, possibly a decent venue for a golf tournament. So I came a year ago to have a look, looked at three golf courses, looked at Aphrodite Hills and figured it would be a good venue and then was going to try and get a tournament this time this year or next year. So went away, spoke to the European Tour, said that I thought it was a decent venue and 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 then didn't get a clump of money in time to start thinking about this year so put it on the back burner and then on august the second the european tour got hold of me and said you know that venue in cyprus do you think the tournament's on at the end of october if we help you with the prize money so we took it from there and said yes like you do think about it later uh got hold of the guys here set things up and got the ball rolling and then about three or four weeks after that they rang me up and said can you do a second one so can you do two weeks running so we're actually on day one of the second week right now here and uh, we've managed to make it slightly different to the first week because we've got a field of 105 and we cut to 32 after two days and we start again from scratch and they play one round, and then the top 16 play the last day, again, starting from scratch. So, basically, we end up with a 16-man shootout showdown on day four to see what happens. So, there's actually about four guys come out because of the because of the format, because they said, well, if we get through, we get through. We're actually playing against 15 other people for a tournament. So, it's, it's going to be quite good fun, and I think we can... The, the course is very sporty, so I think we can set it up either to be very difficult or to be very easy. And I'm not sure which way we do it for the Sunday. Because if you set it up too easy, people will run away on the front nine and get out of sight, make it quite difficult, then make 65, 66, 67 a good score, then people that are still level par after nine have a chance. So I don't know what the tour will decide to do, but it's, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it sounds really innovative. Whose brainchild was that? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of crazy ideas. As it's hazy. Hazy would uh, concur. But I, I sort of always think, and I think, you know, we've had a, 
a 17 tournament run of which 15 have been 1 million euro and exactly the same in the same field and et cetera, et cetera. We had the two $7 million uh, Rolex events, which were great, but everything else has been the same. And these poor guys have been in bubbles for forever. So I figured that if they're going to go to one venue for two weeks, then the second week to play exactly the same as the first week wouldn't be smart. I actually wanted to make it even more different. I wanted... I wanted on the last day that they went out and played, we had 300 grand for first and everybody else got 25 grand. So everybody everybody that didn't win finished second. It was just a bit too radical. Listen, in times of COVID with cash being so tight, 25 grand still a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it would be great fun. If you had one big prize and 15 the same, I think that would have been good. But they, they were worried about how the race to Dubai would work and how world rankings would work, et cetera, et cetera. So I get why the problem was. And I'm even amazed that they agreed to this, this format. So I'm sure it'll happen again now because, like I say, the players have really bought into it. The players have bought into everything the last two weeks. The, I've never heard so many great comments about a resort, about courses, about the food, about the hotel, about, and the weather. The weather's just stunning. Well, it's been such a such an unusual year for for everyone and everything, and it, perhaps there's been a mind shift from players. They're just grateful to be out playing the game again. I know that you know the European tours had to cancel and postpone a lot of events, so perhaps they're just they're just grateful to be working. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think um, they are appreciative more than usual, and uh, and I've certainly had a lot of guys come up to me and thanking me for putting the events on and. And what, how did you find such a venue? Because we, we did Turkey before this, seven years before this. And Turkey was always a bit the same, always unbelievable at venues with great hotels and rooms and food and whatever. So it, we, we're sort of getting a reputation at ISM of being sort of fairly in, innovative for where we go and then what we, what we put on the table. Uh, and, and Chubby, apart from the, the tournaments and, and staging the tournaments, what's the year been like for you as as a sports agent and, and managing players? Because I suppose it's fine if you're an established tour player with, with some money in the bank, but how have you handled the guys who are you know starting out and perhaps aren't as fortunate? Well, last week was the first tournament I've been to since March the 10th. And I'm, as Dale would know, I'm pretty hands-on. But we've not been allowed to go to any tournaments. So I've actually had to stage two events to actually get to an event to see any any of our clients. Wow. So I think that the tour, the European Tour have been pretty smart because they've actually paid every player that's paid. So this week, even the guys that have missed the cut are getting, I think it's €1,500. Euro. So every everybody's almost, almost had their expenses paid for turning up. So that's different to usual because normally you finish outside the top 65, you get nothing. Mm. Um, and I, I think everybody's been fairly sensible. I think the European Tour has done an amazing job to get the, the tournaments on. And and as I said, I haven't been to a tournament this year. So this was the first time, you know, these I've heard about these bubbles, but I didn't realise sort of quite how it works. And, and we've got a bubble that, that actually takes in half the result, but not all the rest because there's some... There's some resident owners, so they had to leave four restaurants for them. And unfortunately, the sports bar's out of our bubble. But it's it's worked amazingly well. We fill in a form online every morning to say we've not got any symptoms and we've not come into contact with anybody, etc., etc. Uh, we've got to, I've actually got tested four, four or five times since I've been here because 
one of my staff got tested positive two weeks ago or 12 days ago. So I lost one of my staff because she was positive and three because they've been in contact with her, uh, one of which is my son, and they are self-isolating in an apartment at the bottom of the range watching the golf by the pool. Um, <laughs> and the poor girl's actually on her own in an apartment. But so they're, they're very good. They're, they've been The European Tour have been unbelievably good. They've been very thorough in the way they've handled the COVID situation. There's been other... Uh, positive tests and people have been taken out the game for 14 days to to self-isolate just in case they were spreaders but it's it's been amazing and we've all got we've all got tags and barcodes and whatever and you've got a you've got a clock in and clock out but it, it works they've, they've done well yeah it's been like it's been such a crazy year and it's just you know it's amazing how quickly we adapt to ever thought that you know the Ryder Cup wouldn't be staged this year and that you'd be watching majors without fans and we're getting ready for the masters coming up soon and that's we're going to see Augusta in November which is highly unusual uh, and without fans there as well it's just so so different yeah so different the USPJ was the first major I've missed since uh, April 1996 wow so I got used to watching one telly. <laughs> Chubby, let's let's just go back a little bit because a lot of people, you know, know Chubby Chandler as uh, ISM as the manager of many of the top players, but they they wouldn't remember that you you're a, a terrific amateur golfer. Just want to talk about your personal golf as an amateur and then as a professional. Well, Hazy, I've gone full circle because now I'm a beginner. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, I played from, I started playing at 12 uh, because I caddied for my dad a bit. My dad was a, just a normal nine-handicap club golfer, played with a massive slice and one putt in every green with a very slicey putting action, I seem to remember. Um, and I was quite a good cricketer. And then when I got to about 14, 15, I couldn't play cricket on my own. I could play golf on my own, so golf took over. I had a reasonable amateur career. I won few tournaments, state opens, uh, British youths, played for England, whatever, whatever. I actually broke one of my own rules now, which is probably why it's a rule now, because I played the best golf I did then in 1973, but I stayed an amateur to try and play the Walker Cup in 1974. And I definitely wasn't playing at the end of 74, but turned pro. And I tell every young kid that comes to me now, you must turn pro when you're playing well. And they look at me as if that's a bit of a strange thing to say, but you'd be amazed how many guys turn pro because they've not made something, just like I did. Didn't make the Walker Cup team. Oh, I'll turn pro. You're not playing good enough to make the Walker Cup team. You shouldn't be turning pro. And, you know, there's, there's optimum times to turn pro in guys' career. And if they turn pro at the right time with good form behind them, then they find the transition from amateur to pro really easy but you get other guys that will turn pro as you know hazy you get the turn pro and they'll turn around to you and they say i'll be fine when i feel comfortable and i look at them and i say well how do you, what do you mean comfortable there's a there's a little square on the right hand side of the scorecard you used to fill it in as an amateur and it used to say 67 you play as a pro and there's still a square there and you still put a number in it. But suddenly it seems to be that in the head where a lot of guys, it's a different game. And and they take these two or three years to become accustomed to being a pro, but it, there is no real reason for it. 
And like I say, if they're playing well at the time, then it's much easier just to hit the ground running. And you're, you're a great supporter of our Sunshine Tour in South Africa. You came and played here many, many, many times. I, I'm going to tell you something now. I, I sound like Gary Player there. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I went to South Africa the first time in January 1975, and I've been to South Africa every year bar one since, when I had this brainwave that I should get off the blacklist and go and play in Nigeria, Ivory Coast, Zambia and Kenya. And I got to Nigeria and remember thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done here? And I did that one winter and then I got straight back on the blacklist, went back to South Africa for about the next six or seven years as a player. And I've been back there every year since. And I think every single young player that I've ever managed that's been any good has always played in South Africa. So Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, Paul McGinley, Andrew Coltart, they all started in South Africa. Matt Wallace, they've all been down there. And uh, and I have a lot of friends in South Africa. And I have to say, Hazy, you know everybody waits for that Masters invite through the post. I wait for the Alfred, the Dunhill invite. And then now, because the Dunhill's a bit tough for me, I wait for the Die Data invite to come. And it arrived yesterday. Oh, brilliant. I've got to work out how I get my handicap up to about 16 and then I might finish higher than 140 seconds. <laughs> Let's just put this in context, yeah? You know, you want to get your handicap up to 16. Past Brazilian Open champion. No, Sao Paulo Open, 1985, ah. October. You're getting a little bit petty there. Sao shot, Paulo is Brazil. Shot 1100, <laughs> 63 last round, can remember it like it was yesterday. But my hands and my head don't remember it anymore. Chavi, <laughs> you, you know, you say yeah, you did, you perhaps didn't turn pro when you were, when you were playing well, but you still did 15 years on tour. Yeah, I was very good at getting myself a sponsor, and I played okay. I played okay three years. Uh, probably it's actually when Hazy made his comeback, I played okay. 85, 86, 87, I played okay. But I I really think that if I'd have turned pro. In 73, playing really well, it would have been a really easy transition to, to become a good player much quicker. And and I always say now, if I'd have had me now managing me then, I would have been also a decent player. And Chubby, what about guys that are playing well and hold out to play in the Walker Cup team, then decide to turn pro, but then don't go on to achieve great things as professionals? Do you see that a lot? You're very, you're very good. You lead me into all the right stories. <laughs> Um, in August 1990, a young lad came to see... Well, I went to see a young lad and they told me that he'd win the Irish Amateur and, and he did and he did won all sorts of things and sat down and we talked and it, it, he was Irish and the, the Walker Cup was in Ireland the year after and he said, do you think I should turn pro now or wait for the Walker Cup? And I said to this guy, Darren Clark, that if you turn pro now you will be a much, much better player in a year's time. And you won't miss out on many invites and you won't miss out on any contracts. And I said, because they, they just didn't in those days particularly recognise the amateur game. And, and they probably still don't, unless you write an elite amateur, you know, a, a Matt Wolf or, or ride up there, then you're not going to get that much um, favours as a pro. And Darren and I went to the Walker Cup as a guest of the guy that introduced us, a guy called Dougie Heather, a year later, and we were having lunch, and Darren had had his usual eight, six, eight pints of Guinness. So he's he's talking freely. 
and we watched one of the, the American amateurs. He, he talked his second got on a par four, and he just looked at me and he says, Chubby, you're right. They look like a bunch of amateurs. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's almost to the same degree now that the, the, the amateurs make a very big thing of making the Walker Cup or, or making the Eisenhower Trophy or whatever it is. And they also make a big thing about sort of their, their amateur sort of tick-offs. And yet, as a, in a pro career, it makes no difference. You, you turn pro, you're not having to satisfy any selectors. You're not going to wear a column tie at any presentation. It is your game that counts. Obviously, you'll do the right things, but it is your game that counts. So I think that the, the, the amateurs in it is, is two different things. You get to the top of the amateur game and you've done well. But when you turn pro, you just have to start again and do your thing. But, Trevi, I think you would agree that you need to, you need to be one of the best amateurs before you even contemplate turning professional. The standard is so high and there's so many great players coming from every different country in the world today that, I mean, you've got to be able to beat most of the amateurs in your particular country before you even contemplate it. It's interesting, Dale. You, you sort of, you, you have guys that book the trend every now and again, don't you? You get a guy like Ross McGowan winning last week. And I, I love Ross Dealey and he's been down to South Africa many times and he played the Minotaur, he's played this, played that. But he's been absolutely your, your number one journeyman pro and really hasn't even got to tour standard very often. And he goes out and wins and that brings another 400 people in living the dream again because they all think, well, if he's done it, I can do it. But it's so hard out here now. I've I've got a young guy, he comes down to South Africa and played all right there last winter called Mitch Waite. And, and he'll be coming down this winter. And I played with him two months ago. And I walked round nine holes in practice with him here last week. And he's put 30 yards of length on in two months. But don't think every kid's not looking what Bryson's doing. And yes. and, and, and they're all got the same idea. Now, it was interesting. I had a conversation with this kid yesterday. And he, and he said, yeah, but I'm not as strong now as I was at the beginning of the last week. And I said, you mean in 10, 12 days away from pumping iron and lifting weights that you'll have lost some of your strength he said without doubt and he, he looked at me and he said why do you think Bryson's not playing now I said what he said he's having four weeks before the Masters to bulk up so he's at his optimum strength and weight Thursday of the Masters that to me is unbelievable it really is the game has changed so much we mentioned you winning the Brazilian Open but you've managed Obviously, Darren winning the Open Championship, Lewis Tyson when he won the Open Championship. You've had your disappointments, and and uh, you know he's uh, he's the most wonderful player. But you've had your disappointments with Lee Westwood, who could have won a bunch of majors. What has been the highlight? Which is which of those events would you say you put on top the top of your list? It's pretty easy that Dale. I mean, Darren winning at St George uh, was just an amazing week, um, and and you know when you think. I look back and, and you know, you'd given up that he was ever going to win an, an Open. And and that particular week, he actually walked off the course on the Tuesday um, because he, he was playing support. And then he played on the Wednesday with uh, Charlene Louis and um, Rory. That was the four ball. And they walked off the, the 14th tee and Louis, Charles and Rory 
were leaving Darren because he was last off. And they turned around to him and shouted, oh, man, come and join these major winners. And and they'd all obviously won their major already. And then, as it happened, then four days later, he was a major winner. But that was that was pretty special. They're all pretty special, but... But, you know, sort of the emotion of that occasion was just amazing. Chubby, I want to go back a little bit. I want to go back to the start of ISM in 89. And I think you you were operating from this back room at, at the Mere Golf Club. I think you were connected to the club's owner. I think he sponsored you in, in the late 70s and, and early 80s. D- did you see it as a major risk at the time? No, I had nothing else to do. I, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. So... I, I didn't even know what PR stood for and I certainly didn't know enough about the golf swing to teach. I could teach now, but I couldn't teach then. I, I had no knowledge of the golf swing. I had nothing else to do. I'm going to sit in a shop and sell tea pegs and golf balls. So I had to go and, and it was, that, that all goes back to South Africa because I, um, I used to do some corporate work down there for ICI. Ah. And... And I, uh, I was sort of playing with customers before most people, and I got them to sponsor John Bland, and John and I did some corporate days together. Uh, one in particular, I played after a vicious night out. We played at um, Durban Country Club on the Sunday before the South. Uh, I don't think it was the South African Open. I think it was one of the Gordon's Gin or something like that um, tournament. And we played, and I played with these guys with this fearsome hangover, and I shot 90 with the amateurs on the Sunday. <laughs> and and they they actually came to watch me later in the week, and they were absolutely gobsmacked that I made the cut and finished about 10th. <laughs> and and I, like I say, that that was corporate golf then. You know, we were we were allowed to drink on a on a Saturday night because the tournaments finished Saturday, and Sundays tended to be a pro am or a write off. But I. I then, the guy was a guy called Mike Parker that headed up ICI South Africa. He went back to Britain and headed up then ICI Colours, fine dyes and fine colours, and said to me in 89, I want to start a golf programme because we've got a lot of Japanese customers. And he said, can we sponsor you? And I said, well, I'm sort of finishing. But what I'll do is I'll find a couple of players and uh, I'll manage the programme. And we started like that, and I got uh, Phil Harrison and Carl Mason were the first two players that they they uh, sponsored, and we ran a program of uh, golf for Japanese visitors. And the deal was forty grand in total. The two guys got ten uh, each, and then there was some cost when there, and then there was a little fee for for ISM, and that's how we started. But Chubby, going back, going back to when. Uh you and I spent quite a lot of time together in the middle 80s. I mean, you used to book all the hotels. You knew exactly which restaurants to go to. You definitely knew which pubs to go to. You knew where all the girls were. I mean, you were the ideal travel companion in those days. I knew where all the girls were, Hazy, because they were all coming out of your room. <laughs> <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> but I think, yeah, you're right. And... Um, you know, in those days, I was obviously doing what I do now then, but didn't realise I was doing it. I used to have, I, you know, I used to quite enjoy getting a deal for a hotel and four of us stay there and get suites instead of rooms and this, that, and the other. And that's that. That is where my job started. It was, you know, when when I actually started 
doing it properly in 89-90, I knew what I was doing because I'd been doing it for five, six years for the likes of Queenie and you and Mace and, you know, people around me because I like doing it. Uh, let's talk Let's talk about Rory. Obviously, there is a massive coup for you to, to sign Rory McIlroy. I mean, a guy everybody, re- I think, knew early on that he was going to be a world beater. And then, you know... When, when obviously when he decided to leave and form his own company, it must have been heartbreaking. Just take us through that that period of your life. I've got used to that since then, so that it's, it's, not, it's not that heartbreaking anymore. In fact, when some when people leave me now, I turn around and say, "You're not the best player that's ever done this." <laughs> um, this R- Rory was interesting. We did, we looked after him for four and a half years, but we'd looked after him for about three years before he turned pro. Um, he was on Darren Clark's foundation from the age of 13. And from certainly at the age of 15, I was sort of helping his dad uh, try and sort things out. I remember when he was 16, uh, dad rung me up and said, I'm having terrible trouble. We've got 40 American colleges trying to sign Rory. What shall I do? I said, well, he's too good to go to college in America. You might as well forget it. You could just ring them all back and say, you're not going to go to college. Um, and then it happened a bit with management companies after that. And I just said, well, just turn around and say, if anybody wants to sign him up, just say, speak to Chubby, they'll work out what's happening then. So, and, and Darren did exactly that too, to IMG when he turned pro. IMG rung him just after he'd committed to us. And he turned around to IMG and just said, well, just ring Chubby, he'll, he'll tell you what's going on. Rory was probably the easiest person that I've ever managed that turned pro because... We knew about four months in the... In fact, he bought a house before he turned pro. I sat with him on the on the veranda at Carnoustie behind the 18th green. And we were having a meeting going through various bits and pieces when he should turn pro and what he would do and this, that and the other. And he said, can I buy a house? And and he hadn't, it was three months before he turned pro. You know, he got absolutely zero earnings. But you knew what was coming. So I said, yeah, sure. He said, I think I should get on the ladder, don't you? And his first house, he spent 600 grand pounds on a house before he turned pro. Wow. And uh, and that was his, that that showed his belief in himself and also his earning power as soon as he, he turned pro. You know, he, and, and when I say he was the easiest person, it was because we knew, I knew we were promoting the British Masters at the Brailfrey on about, September, I think he turned pro on September the 17th, I think. And it was that week we were doing the British Masters at the the Belfry. He was going to go and try and get his tour card through the tour school, the first prequel of the tour school, the week before, and then come to the Belfry. So he turned up and he he was 15th out of 60, so he's through to the next round. And he turned pro, and we, we already had an equipment sponsor two corporate sponsors, a car and everything ready for the day he turned pro because we knew we'd known four months in advance when it was happening. So it was really easy. And he, he I had a big thrill the week after because I played with Lee Westwood in the Dunhill and um, Rory played with Mike DeCock. And it was in the it was in the years that you played with the same group for the first three rounds. So Lee and I played with Rory and Mike and Rory finished third in the tournament to get his card. So it took him two weeks to get his card in Europe. Wow. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. So, I mean, Rory, I mean, we, you know, he's, he's 
obviously he's the most wonderful player. I mean, in my opinion, still, even today, the most naturally gifted golfer on tour at the, today. But is he as nice a guy as he seems to be? I mean, all the interaction I've had with him, which has been very little, he's always been super nice. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. And I think he, I think that being a superstar and a big celebrity weighs quite heavily on his shoulders. I think, you know, I think there'd be quite a lot of days when Rory quite like not to be Rory McIlroy, but have, you know, he likes all the things that goes goes with being Rory McIlroy. But I'm, I'm not so sure he wants to be in the limelight all the time or, you know, be in a restaurant and everybody for sign the menu or this, that and the other. I think he'd be, he'd be happy with a quieter life, but I think he understands that the life goes with what he's achieved and and, and the money he earns because that's, you know, guys pay big money to make sure you're a big star. Uh, and Nike made him a big star. The, 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 new, the new stars of South African golf, or, you know, I'm going back a little bit, I suppose, but Louis Oestes and Charles Swatzel, you managed them as well and you managed a, quite, a, quite a big group of South Africans. Um, how did that come about? That was that's because of my connections there, and because I was always down there, and, and and you know people like George Schwarzel had a lot to play in Shal coming with me, you know, and I, I, you and I both know what George was good at, and and uh, and he helped me along my way get it signing Shal. I actually uh, that year I helped Shal, Louis, Albert Kruger, I think, and Richard Sterney. I think that was the four come over to Europe and play, you know, the Lytham Trophy, the Irish Amateur, the Brabazon, and all those. Um, before before these guys were sort of all looked after by the unions. So I had a guy that drove them around and caddied for one of them and, and just generally looked after them. So that that's how that happened. And then of course one talks to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And Louis Oosthuizen, would you say? Would you agree that he's really underachieved for as good a player as he is? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's pretty hard. I mean, you know, who, who would be a bigger underachiever? Probably Rory's a bigger underachiever than Louis. And Darren's an underachiever compared with both of them as well. You know, they, they all have this ability to play unbelievable golf, but, but Louis's another one. You know, Louis, Louis likes to have enough money to do what he wants to do. He doesn't. He wants to spend a lot of time with his family. Well, who can who can argue with that? You know, at the end of the day, everybody has different um, priorities, and not everybody wants to be the best golfer in the world, and not everybody can be the best golfer in the world. So, I think when you sort of see people going back to Rory, see people criticise Rory because he's not got the the drive maybe that some of the others have, or can't do this, can't do that. They got to understand that he's got. Millions and hundreds of millions in the bank, and he's got a very nice wife, and he's got a very settled sort of life. What's so bad about that? You know, maybe he wants to win eighty majors, and I think that you know we forget that. Maybe maybe Louis doesn't want to win five majors. Maybe one was enough for Louis, and he's achieved what he wanted to do, and he's he's financially secure. And one of the things you can't talk about Rory and Louis like this now because one. One of the things that since your guys is that they get 25 rand to the pound. So they make all, or 20, whatever it is, 15 rand to the dollar. So they make all these dollars and suddenly they've got hundreds of millions of rand. 
and and they don't need to go. <laughs> they don't need to go and make it though. You know that I'm sure that Ernie was probably the last legendary South African that played to win major championships and to win all over the place because he probably still needed to do that to make the money through the 90s. And I'm not so sure the lads now need to have the drive because they don't need to make any more money than they're actually making now. I was interested right. to learn, uh, Chubby, that, that Louis Oosthuizen was your first major championship winner at the Open at St. Andrews in 2010. Darren went on to win a year later, of course, but, but 2010 was a great year for you because Westwood was second and I think McElroy tied th third. So that, that, that was very good. That's right. And, and, and it was very special for me because my son, I think, then was 14 and he came up. It was the first time he'd been to a major with me. And he, uh, we stayed in a twin room in the Old Course Hotel overlooking 17. Magic. And we spent the week together. And I can remember, as if it's now, we were stood on the steps watching this little guy walk up the 18th, seven shots clear, and me thinking, wow, this is pretty cool, and especially with my son right next to me. So it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was memorable. That I remember, I remember it, uh, at St. Andrews on the third morning, if you remember, it was really windy. Yeah. And and I'd forgotten, silly me, forgotten them where Louis had grown up. So I walked onto the range watching Louis hit, and he's hitting these 120-yard six signs, just chipping them forward about 20 feet high. And I went, hmm, forgot, forgot you're from the Southern Cape. And he hit, a, hit for about 25 minutes, and he looked at me and said, I'm bored now. <laughs> and I thought, what a strange thing to say when you're leading the, leading the Open. But he actually didn't mean I'm bored now. He actually meant I'm ready now. And and it was it always stick to me, turn around and said, I'm bored. But he was chipping these six times. I thought, Oh yeah, yeah, no, I've forgotten you can play in the wind. So yeah, ama amazing week. And take us through the celebrations then, at at because I love this. I, I love the fact that you guys uh, ISM rented out the Jigger Inn as your officers for the week. Tell us about the celebrations yeah. after he won. Yeah, we had, we had, we had this we had the jigger in for the week, and we because everybody tends to know my nickname, then you always keep get got people during the week turning up at the door. And we had security on the door, and they said, "Chuck said it'd be all right." And we actually every day had a different girl's name as the code, so they actually had to come and say, "Rachel said it's all right if I come in for a drink or Veronica <laughs> or whatever, not Chubby," and. On the last night after the tournament, we had the security guys. And I just said to the guys, I said, just listen, any comes with a South African accent, just let them in. <laughs> and we had we had about 100, 120 in there just having a party. And and it was it was great because you don't you don't often able to have that sort of a celebration when you've won a major. You know what I mean? You've got a load of friends there, you've got a load of country folk and, and you, you know, for him it was a massive thing. And I'll tell you what I always remember too. I remember Ricky Fowler was walking with his girlfriend across the golf course and he jumped over that little wall by the jigger and came and joined in with it. And I thought, what a cool kid he is. Yeah, well, that is awesome. But Chubby, you know, people may have picked up by now that you have worked with the biggest names in the game. What is the difference between managing a player and looking after a player? Because you're, how do you manage someone like Rory McIlroy or Darren Clark or Lee Westwood or Louis Oosthuizen? Obviously all different because they're all different people. They're all, they're all different ways they go about their life. I mean, geez, I still manage Darren Clark. 
day to day and do his bank accounts and everything. He's 51, but I'm not sure he's ever ever quite going to grow up. Um, and and you asked me, you asked me what was one of the best wins. One of the best wins was Sunday night when he won his uh, first Champions Tour event. I managed to watch it on my phone in bed for about two and a half hours here in Cyprus. And I can't tell you how excited I was because he he, he went over there and he only got a one-year exemption for winning a major and two World Golf Champions, which to me seemed absolutely ridiculous. And he's he had a couple of chances to finish good, maybe not quite win, and then to win it, he's got a two-year exemption. So he's all right now. He's off and running and uh, I can just leave him to it. Chubby, um the European Tour this year, obviously it's been a crazy year with the COVID thing and, and golf courses being closed and tournaments being cancelled all over the world, etc., etc. And as you mentioned earlier, the European Tour has done an incredible job of getting things up and running over the last three months or so and putting on tournaments, you know, wherever they could put on tournaments, sometimes having two tournaments on the same course or in the same area um, as, they, as they are right now in Cyprus. But this this must have this must take a, a huge toll on their finances, um, because you know they've they've had to come to the party. I think you know with most of the tournaments in terms of prize money. What what is, what is your feeling about you know twenty twenty one and the European Tour and the conspiracy theory that you know the PGA Tour may kind of want to take over the European Tour and all those kind of things. I think they're lucky. I think they've got a couple of options. Um, I think for them to make a full recovery in 2021, the way things are going is impossible. I think the first half of 2021 is going to be pretty similar to now. Um, their three tournaments in the desert are going to be all right. I think uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Saudi. Um, they've got two, I think, in Hong Kong uh, at the beginning of the year. But after that, I think there's a there's a bit of a a lull for about two months. So I think there'll be a few tournaments like this, this week, uh, going on then. But uh, their two long-term solutions would appear to be either to become a uh, a second division PGA Tour, which which I can see working because uh, at the end of the day, every kid that I manage wants to get on the PGA Tour. So, you know, if, 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 you, if Europe becomes a satellite, a very big satellite tour to the PJ Tour. It's not the end of the world because the guys are still going to get the opportunity to get to where they were. I always find it incredible how much money the PJ Tour have. They've been, they've had no programs, they've had no spectators, but they kept playing for seven, eight, nine million. So I think you know their reserve of cash is amazing, and because they've got this reserve of cash, they've been able to fight off this Premier Golf League that became a threat about a year ago. Uh, they've been able to fight it off because they have much money. So the Premier Golf League then looked to the European Tour to then maybe be that's their route. So I think both conversations for Europe are quite valid. Um, I think the Premier Golf League would gain by being part of the European Tour because they would instantly get ranking points, which I don't see how they get any other way. Um, so I think for Europe, the fact they've got two solid options which way to go is is a is a very good thing. I think that you know whatever happens, I think Keith Pelly will work out the best route forward. But the fact they have got a route forward is very good because I think you know maybe four or five months ago it was it was looking pretty grim. 
Mm. Uh, Chubby, we spoke to Nick Felder a few weeks ago and uh, it was really insightful and he he told us about how he started out with Mark McCormack and it was a deal done on a handshake. Have you ever done business like that? I would imagine probably nowadays with, with these guys being superstars and the amount of money involved, it might be difficult to do that. But did you ever conduct business like that? Yeah, I, well, we only started having contracts about three years ago. That's why everybody left because they didn't have a contract. Other management companies got in their ear and they could walk away. Um, you know, we, we, we could enforce the fact that a contract in kind. So nobody actually ever screwed us completely. But we never got paid properly when people left us. But we didn't, we didn't uh, when, when I signed Darren, he turned around to me and said, what should we do about a contract? And I told him, Mark McCormack and uh, Arnold Palmer never had a contract. So he said, right, that's what we're doing. And we, we still haven't got a contract. If I asked Darren Clark for a contract, he'd think I was on drugs. <laughs> Uh, Dale touched on it earlier with watching someone like Rory McIlroy walk out of your life and another guy that was with you for a very long time, 24 years, Lee Westwood, when he left, we don't need to go into the details, but you know, how, how are things now between the two of you? Is it uh, amicable? Well, that, that, was, that was really tough. Um, that was a set of circumstances that happens in people's divorces. And, you know, I ended up with divorce lawyers crawling all over me and me trying to explain how we did business and you know at times there was give and take because there always was you know the, there was no other way we could do things and for whatever reason Lee got fairly brainwashed by lawyers which which happens because I've been divorced and I know exactly what happens and the the worst part of the Lee breakup for me was the fact that he was just about my best friend and suddenly was no friend at all and, and still really isn't. Yeah. Um, we acknowledge each other sometimes and he doesn't acknowledge me other times when he's in company. So it is what it is. You, you know, I'm glad he's gone on. You know, he started playing great again the last two or three years and he's obviously enjoying his life and, and doing fine and that's, that's by me. But it's, it was tough at the time and like I say, it's tougher than you lose a friend. Sure. But, uh, Life goes on. Worse things happen to people than that, don't they? Can you tell us a little bit about when, when Louis won the Open in 2010 and, you know, timing and everything like that? Because I think at that period you, you'd sold something like 75% of, of ISM shortly before he won. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I, and that was divorce, my divorce. Um, because the problem was that um, all my wealth was in my company. You know, I actually, and I wasn't wealthy because you know you don't take, you don't build up that much cash in uh, salary. So the wealth was in my company, so I had to sell a chunk of my company to pay my ex-wife half of what I had. Um, so I ended up with various different business partners, and you know, some sometimes they were bad choices. I think you know, and other times it, it was just poor circumstance. I'm very lucky right now. I've actually got as stable a situation as I've had for maybe ever because I have a board of four people of which the other three are very smart and uh, and I do I rock on doing what I do and, and you know if I have a problem I check with them and and there have been problems in the last six nine months because of furloughing and and obviously no cash what we, we our business has been really strange last eight months because although we, we we struggle we don't struggle that much because I'm not not paying out any expenses. And if I don't travel, 
then and all the contract money comes in, we're actually doing okay. So we've actually got more money in the bank now than we had in March. You know, I think just like everybody else, you have to batten down your hatches. You have to make sure you don't spend too much uh, and then sort of go from there and see what you've got left. And I think, funnily enough, I think we, we're beginning to just come into a really interesting spell because, you know, we do something like these two weeks it doesn't seem like any other management company's done anything for the European Tour this year. It's, it's sort of, most of the other companies, it's been all take. And I think the European Tour and the players recognise that we've, we're doing our, our bit. And I've, I feel a different sort of vibe amongst the players towards us this week, last week. And I also feel that the Tour realise that we're doing our best for them. So... I think we're coming into a pretty good spell right now. There's, there's a bit of interest amongst players. People asking me, you know, sort of, would we be interested in signing them? And also with other tournaments. You know, we haven't talked about other sports. We've been talking about golf. But you boys had a, had a great interest in all sports. But, you know, uh, cricket, obviously, uh, you were involved in managing a whole bunch of cricketers and, and horse racing. So talk, yeah. talk to us a little bit about gambling, horse racing, your other sports. Yeah, well, I, I, I like a bet. I don't bet anything like as much as I used to, but I like a bet. I love the horse racing. There's some really nice people in horse racing, and Lee and I built up quite a few horses, but the fallout with Lee meant that we, we got rid of them all. I got two legs in two, that's all now. Um, and keepers, creepers, they eat a lot. They never stop eating, so, you know, they're expensive things. But I enjoy my sport. I enjoy cricket. Um, and I think, you know, sort of, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't get back into cricket again at some stage. I wouldn't be surprised if we do all sorts of things. One of the things I was going to say just back there when we changed the subject, I am would love to do a tournament in South Africa. You know, I got I got so many links with South Africa and so much sort of feeling for the country that, you know, one one day I would see us doing trying to promote an event down there for three years or whatever, just to just to be involved and give something back to the Sunshine Tour because the Sunshine Tour has been unbelievably good to me and then unbelievably good to about hundred players that I've managed. So it'd be it'd be great fun to do one down there. Toby, what in your opinion, apart from talent, separates the good player? From, from the great. So when you're looking at, at signing a golfer and scouting talent, what are you looking for? Uh, well, if I say I'm looking for balls, you get the wrong impression, wouldn't you? But you're looking for balls, you're looking for a heart, you're looking for a head. The talent, there's so many of them got it. That's that's almost a taken. Mm. So if I'm looking at any golfer at all, they've already got talent. But you get one or two that have got a heart and they've got a good head and then obviously they've got to be able to play under the under the cosh and enjoy playing when it matters. Uh, we've got we've got a really interesting kid right now called Sammy Valamaki. Yeah, who's a Finnish lad, and and we ended up signing him probably about eighteen months old, and we were lucky enough to sign him because he'd gone in the army, and he'd gone off. He's only he was only nineteen, but he'd gone off everybody's radar because he disappeared into the army for. You know, he was, he was in a tent at minus 25 in the top of Finland. So all these other management companies had, had left him alone. And he's turned out to be the most um, straightforward, simplistic golfer I've ever seen. don't know whether you've seen him play yet, but he just gets hold of the club, looks at it, hits it and goes after it. He never leaves a putt, anything but 
three foot past and he just goes at every flag. He's good fun to watch. Yeah, he is. I, I was really impressed by him when he went head to head with, with Brandon Stone at the beginning of the year and I, my money was on Brandon to beat him and gee whiz, he just held on there. He had such grit. That's right. He's got plenty of that. Yeah. And he's a, he's a nice, straightforward kid. Very good. But yeah, you need you need that combination of three and you don't get many people with all three. You know, you... you I'm not. I'm not even sure somebody like Rory's got all three because I'm not sure Rory's got this, as big a heart, say, as a Tiger has. Tiger's got everything in abundance there, and there's so few that have it that can actually just finish things off under the cosh all the time and 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 just keep trying. It sounds crazy, but but Dale would know, and I, you know, you see people and you can see them visibly toss the towel in a bit. And lose their intensity and and almost not bother, and and it's it, it's it's very rare to find somebody that just can try from the first tee shot to the seventy second hole, and they just try the hardest all week, and it's that that's part of being a champion. Shall be the greatest golfer of all time, Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus? Um, I would have to say Tiger because I've lived closer to Tiger's. Career than I lived next to Mr. Nicholas's uh, career, so I would I would always say Tiger because I've seen it oh, first hand. Oh. But obviously, both ridiculously good and exceptional. Well, Chubby, I think uh, close to wrapping this up. I just as we as we do wind it down, I'd just like to get your thoughts on on where you think the the game is is at at the moment and, and where it's heading. We talk often on this podcast about. The distance debate and, you know, Nick went into it at great length. What he thinks needs to be done, talking about Bryson winning the US Open in, in such fashion and absolutely obliterating and bombing it through the air. Your, your thoughts on, on where the game's going and, and how you feel about that? Um, I think it's gone too far. I'm not sure quite how they rein it back in now. Unless they make the golf ball slightly bigger, which would work, uh, because I played my amateur golf with one size of ball when the pros were using another size of ball. And then my last year as an amateur, I actually used the pro ball to be ready to play professional golf. Unless they do something like that, I don't see what they can do. And yet the courses can't go any longer. The courses are, you know, we, we, we're getting to ridiculous states now where there's sort of nearly 8,000 yard golf courses. Really interesting this week in Cyprus. It's only 6,900 yards. Yeah, it's holding I saw that. Up unbelievably well. It's a fantastic sporty course. Uh, but I think I think they've lost it. I think it's I think the game's gone beyond, um, gone beyond what's the word? Um, skill, finesse. You're never going to see a Seve again. You're never going to get anybody like Seve that could could manufacture shots or a Hazy for that. You know, Hazy used to play some ridiculous shots. The guys don't do that anymore because the equipment lends itself to just teeing it up high and sending it. Everybody, Everybody's golf ball now is a pinnacle that spins. So you've got a pinnacle that spins. You've got clubs that hit it 350 yards. All they have to do is learn how to put them. They're going to win. So I think I think there's a problem, but I'm not sure quite. I can't, I can't solve it for you. <laughs> right, well, as long as the guys that are bombing it a mile are your guys and they're the ones that are winning. I've got one more question for you, and we've, um, it's somebody I know that you think very highly of, 
and and I agree one thousand percent with you. And that's Matt Wallace. Yeah. Terrific golfing, incredible balance. He's yeah. focused. He is. He's determined. He's got. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he's got everything. But he's taking a little bit long, maybe, or a little bit longer than some to to well, kind of really uh, reach the top and and start yeah. winning regularly. He's he's only he's only had a full tour card for four years, so in that in that way he's actually older than his career sort of thing. He, you know, he he's thirty, but he's actually only been at it for four years, and he's a very hard worker. And I think also that probably at the end of last year he had an equipment change, which I think in the long run is going to be a, a massive advantage. But but at the time to change, there's always a couple of doubts there. The one thing about Matt is that he's so diligent with trackman and spin rates and yardage and whatever that he will actually get there with whatever he's using. And in actual fact, yesterday he was in Houston and he was testing a Callaway ball because he's never had to use it yet because he's always been contracted to Titleist. And he's got, the, the deal is that he's got to use a Callaway ball if it tests as good or better than a Titleist. And he's gone for his first day of testing. And I've got a five-minute voice that's so interesting. And he's done, is it five shots with 9-iron, 6-iron, 4-iron and driver with three different balls against the old ball he used to use with all the data, but he's never looked at the data. So he's given all the feedback just from the feel of the shot how the ball comes off and whatever. And he's only looking at the data tonight after he's done another day's testing, which I think is really interesting. And and he's already discarded two balls out of three and said one's too hard, one's too soft. So he's actually got the ball he should have. But we actually don't know whether it's as good as the other ball yet. And he he doesn't either. He just got he's got a load of numbers to look at tonight and go, All right, it's there, it's done this, it's done that. But they're so detailed now. I walked around with one of the kids on uh, last week and they, they get out and he got a spirit level out on the putting green. He's lining a ball up and he got a spirit level out and they're doing the same point and they've decided it's eighteen inches left and he's got the he's got the spirit level across it three times. And he missed it 18 inches right and finished 15 feet below. And I thought, hmm, not sure that was worth doing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. But that's, 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 the, le- that's yeah, the length he goes to now. It's no, wonder, it's no wonder they're improving, is it? No, it's just golf by numbers, uh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can imagine how times have changed. While he had his spirit yeah, level up, I hope they would have ordered another beer. <laughs> Bless him. It is still beating him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Javi, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the podcast. Oh. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your insights and and speaking so candidly with us. And good luck with well with the rest of the year and and with all your future Thanks. endeavors. I hope you're successful. All right. Well, it's a pleasure, and I may see you in about three weeks' time, but I'm more likely to see you in the middle of February. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, guys. Coming up on the next episode of The Long and Short of It. Ricky Robertson, welcome to the podcast. The crazy thing is you get between 11 and 12 at Augusta. You look at the flag on 11, it's playing straight downwind and the flag on 12 is coming into you. But, you know, you've got to take all these things into account. So knowing how your your man's mind works, knowing when to say certain things and knowing when to keep a trap shut. There it is. A win.
Rogers. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.